Hello, hello, and welcome to Review 2. This week we're Review 2-ing The Unforgettable Fire. Depth, experimentation, utterly, utterly irritating. There is a limit. Too much Eno. Everything I want from a song. Don't put it on an album. My very favourite U2 song. From innocence to experience, join us as we walk along the promenade and review U2's fourth album, The Regrettable Spire. Wait, what? U2's fourth album. Yeah, it's not called that though, is it? Oh, sorry. The Undetectable Flyer. No, no, that's not it either. Hang on, I've got it here in my notes somewhere. Ah, yes. The Delectable Tone Crier. Right, no. That's not right. Tyler, it's The Unforgettable Fire. Hmm. You'd have thought I'd remembered that. So you join us back in the Review studio. We're now going to talk about the next chapter in the band's life. Tyler, what has led us to this point? Well, thanks for asking. In May of 1983, the band visit the Unforgettable Fire exhibition at the Chicago Peace Museum. In June, uh, they record Red Rocks, which becomes a huge hit with MTV and that whole MTV generation of the early 80s. It really propels U2 to a much more global audience, certainly solidifying the live performances in America. In August, they wow a crowd of 20,000 people at Phoenix Park Racecourse in Dublin. By this time, they have already entered Slane Castle and are working away on what will become the Unforgettable Fire album. In November is the release of Under a Blood Red Sky, which is the vinyl release of the Red Rocks show. Which we will be reviewing at some point when we get through the studio albums. Yes, absolutely. So I don't think we've forgotten it. No, we haven't forgotten it, and it's, it's too important to forget anyway. But another busy 18 months still not gone away you know they they had the live show on the on MTV and then they had that then there was the release of that and they've been touring all they don't go away in the in this early 80s period they are always doing something they're always in the public consciousness you too are a consistent presence in the music scene of the 80s it, just compare that to the output of the modern day it's it's just crazy. They did six albums in the 80s. They're a very hungry band at this stage. It must have been amazing to be a fan at that time. Yeah. Always uh, new content on the way. Not forgetting the singles that don't have albums. Just constantly this U2, U2, U2. I, I can't help but be jealous of that time. So here we are, October 1984. A brand new U2 record, The Unforgettable Fire. Yeah? Yep, that's yep. the right one this time. Yep, good. Steve Lillywhite is not with them this time, the producer of the first three albums. Uh, he has been replaced by Brian Eno and Danny Lamoir. And we will see how the two new people in the studio affect the sound of you 2 so it's been well documented that The Unforgettable Fire marks a change in direction from the band. This is a conscious decision to go with something far more experimental, something more ambient, more interesting than what some people might call a conventional rock and roll formula and the sound that they'd been trying to achieve previously. Now, with this uh, newfound confidence comes some interesting things. There was a naked recording session, for example. Were the coconuts involved? 
The coconuts did not feature, sadly. Oh. But with this newfound freedom, we get all these interesting uh, sonic textures, interesting structures that we'll obviously talk about as we go through the album. But also there were deadlines at the end and this led to some rush, some rushed lyrics from Bono and some of the songs not being entirely finished. And this, while I love the album in terms of its change in direction, it is a far less consistent album, as I think we'll find, than, than War. Um, where were you, Tyler, when you... When you heard the Unforgettable Fire for the first time? It would have been 2003, uh, a crazy summer. Probably only weeks after buying War. Um, but I bought the vinyl of, of this record. Whereas I, I t- I sometimes I bought vinyl, sometimes I, I, I bought CDs. And at, at that age, I didn't really care about you know the difference between the sound. But I bought the vinyl, and I have a displeasure with the cover. Not what it is, not how it looks, but how it feels. It's a very, uh, I would describe it as a very brittle card. And it and it just, I, I don't know, it's just, it seems offensive to the touch sometimes. What an oversight, lads. I mean, I, I just don't like it. I've never ever, I've never had an album, a vinyl album, where it has been a problem to, t- I just don't like touching it. So I, in conclusion, Tyler does not like The Unforgettable Fire because the card is brittle. <laughs> no, I just, I just, I don't know if it was cheap or the, or, or, or maybe it's a more expensive card, and you know it was, it was supposed to be. I don't know anything about card, but from it just really annoyed me. Always, always annoyed me. Do you like the cover art though? I mean, I think it's interesting that we've moved from those early pictures of of Rowan. Well, this is something we never really talk about. Uh, we talked about it on October. I like Boy. I now like October. Although I can see mm. why it has its his uh, its detractors, mm. uh, I like War. Yeah, I like the stark contra- uh, contrast of the black and the white with the red writing, and uh, Peter Rowan with the cut on his lip. Love that. I don't like the mauve color of Unforgettable Fire. I don't like the imagery. Is that supposed to be the band? Because it looks like a couple of vampires <laughs> for me, and I really. It's a good. There are songs on this album that really save it because, as in terms of a package, and that isn't always a guarantee of a, a good album. But in terms of a package, it's not pretty. It doesn't feel nice, and it's very, very uninteresting with that mauve kind of purple they use. What's wrong with mauve? Stop hating on mauve. Would you wear mauve? Mm, probably not, but I do like purple. But I'd also say the. I, I quite like the cover. I think it's very of its time. I can't. I, I I can only think they must be embarrassed by their own pretentiousness to do that to the album cover. It's ridiculous, and it jars with my favourite things on the album. Well, interesting. Do you know what I think the worst thing about the cover is? And I quite like the cover. This album was famously recorded partially at Slane Castle, and I think that's interesting because you can hear. They've moved outside a tight studio. You can almost hear the walls falling down as yeah, the sound gets bigger. Yeah, it's recorded in a ballroom, and you get that echoey sound. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it, it adds to the sound. However, this is not Slane Castle. And it seems like now you're set up every time to think, oh, this was recorded at Slane Castle. Once you become a little bit more of a U2 anorak, that must be Slane Castle on the thing. It isn't Slane Castle. Yeah. 
I've currently forgotten which castle it is, but it ain't slain. Yeah, I think it begins with a H. I looked this up as well. But they, they really wanted this, this artwork at, at the time because they saw some photography from the early 80s. Um, and then they thought, that looks really good. And so they went there and they took the pictures with the same filters on the camera and ended up having to pay a royalties fee because they'd used so many of the same techniques of the, of the original photography. Like, that's how much they wanted this. Look at it. It's not that good. I would not pay anything to have that on my album. That People would have to pay me to put that on my album. And yet, this is a man who likes the October cover. I do like the October cover. Okay, well, so do you have any more memories about where you were when you heard the album? Yes, I bought it from Affleck's Palace in Manchester. I may have been there with you. Quite possibly. Uh, top floor, kind of really small record store in there. And then we came home, we went to a local park, and do you, rather fittingly, do you remember the fire tree that we used to go to? <laughs> and set this... Who could forget? Set this t- the tree, tree on fire. Uh, and a friend of ours, who shall remain nameless, would buy about 20 lighters uh, for a pound or something from Wigan Market and put them all in the tree and then set the thing on fire. So we're admitting to arson and public nuisance. The tree is no longer there, so... Because it burned down. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But that's where I was. Um, this summer when I was getting into U2 was lovely and balmy and just just a fun time because I was getting into music that I would, you know, it would still mean something to me. So that's where I was. Johnny, where were you? I definitely heard Pride before on the radio on the best of that I currently had and I'd listened to the Joshua Tree by by this point so this was kind of mid to late in my discovery of U2's albums and I think it's a good time to listen to it because you've already got the big hits you're already quite well aware of the the you know the songs which become more popular on the radio whereas this is a much more experimental album and my enduring memory of this album was not when I first got it, but was when I actually went to college and started uh, listening to it and discussing it with other people who I was, you know, drinking with, having a laugh with, that kind of thing. And they knew all these same kind of obscure songs as I did that they actually, you know, really liked, say, Wire, Promenade, The Unforgettable Fire, songs which don't regularly appear in U2's, you know, live output, would certainly not appear in a best of. So if I could just comment on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what year was that that you went to college? About 2005? Yeah, it was around. The, it was definitely around the time of you know Vertigo was taking off. So which is a big contrast in itself. They're very much in the public consciousness at that point. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember when I went to college. Well, No Line on the Horizon was on the horizon. Yeah. And that was a very hard sell for me to go into college and talk to my friends who are really into music and go, you know, you should really listen to uh, U2. And they could very easily just turn around and go, well, get on your boots. Yeah, your sexy boots. Yeah, it's... So you had it easier, I think, than I did. Yeah, they were riding high at that point. I mean, you know, people forget how popular those iPhone and iPod ads were. They were really in the public limelight in in a very popular way. I'd say that's just before the kind of the turn occurred. Yeah. Um, but the last thing I want to say about this album before we get into discussing it is it contains my very favourite U2 song. And as U2 is my favourite band, this is my favourite song, uh, you know, 
of all time yeah at the moment it's not changed for the past 10 years i don't see it happening anytime soon so people can guess anticipate you know think of mm, what song what song could it be that is johnny's favorite as we review to the unforgettable fire here we go Okay, track one, A Sort of Homecoming. Johnny, what do you think? This is the song that I always play to people when I'm trying to show off the fact that you two actually have some excellent lyrics. As someone who, you know, kind of has studied, studied English, I think that this song in particular is poetry. It's an exceptional level of complexity, richness, it's evocative. It's something that the band maybe haven't achieved as well previously. And it's interesting because that phrase, a sort of homecoming, Bonner was reading a lot of uh, the poet Paul Salon at this point, and he said that poetry is a sort of homecoming. So I think that's where the line comes from. And it means that the album is set up to be an album that's full of lyricism. It's an album where weariness and promise are combined in this really interesting way. And I think you get that all the way through the song. You get a kind of a yearning in Bono's voice, but also a sense of hope. I mean, you have that line, see, pl- see faces ploughed like fields that once gave no resistance. Lines like that stick out for me as being more more poetic than anything that's been achieved so far. Yeah, the, the imagery of that um, is stunning. I noticed a lot of the same things, a change in sound the the easygoing start not not a big uh, song like Sunday Bloody Sunday it's so much looser in its feel as well the rhythm yeah it's it, and it and not to say that it's um, that Sunday 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 Bloody Sunday is bad at all but this it, it has it, it's a different feel it's a different album it's a different uh, era in U two U music it shows that they're growing in confidence uh, they are they, they think. They don't have to stay to uh, stick to the same format of each album. They don't have to have that big song at the start. They can have a, a quieter one that slowly builds, and this song does build. It isn't the it isn't the single because if we were following that structure you've just laid out, the first song would be Pride normally. Yeah, which is, is which I think that would be a far weaker opener to the to the track. So I agree with you there. It's evident that they have uh, they have Eno in Lenoir in the in the studio. This has just got Eno written all over it. That am- ambient guitar mm. and a little little tiny sprinklings of synth here and there. Mm. It's got some of my favourite U two lyrics and imagery. But does it overstay its welcome? No, definitely not. I uh, just. Listening, I don't think I thought this before, but I just think it goes on about a minute too long. Nothing new happens in the last 60 seconds. The next time you listen to it, go back and just think, okay, I think it's about 5 minutes 30, but if it was 4 minutes 30, would it not be a lot more succinct? It would be, but I think it would make it a weaker song. I, I like the fact that they're relaxed enough to to let it go a little bit longer and there's some there's some variations adam changes his bass right at the end a little bit i mean this is maybe a nerdish thing to to notice yeah you I've, are coming across like a bit of an anorak though well it wouldn't be for the first time I, I i like how long it is i like the song but i i think it's about 60 seconds too long 
There's a lyric in there which I... I was wondering, how long are they going to sing this song? <sighs> There's a lyric later on, and I don't know if you find have found this... I've tried to look at the lyrics a little bit more whilst I've been listening to the album, and I think it's really interesting when you find a lyric that you've been listening to for over a decade that you realise, oh wait, that's actually different than how I expected it to. And the lyric I've always heard is, see will die and live again. So, you know, see will, the abstract concept of will, see it die in people, presumably the people who have been ploughed like fields, etc., and then see it live again. And that's what I was talking about in terms of that conjunction between weariness and renewal and hope. But it, apparently it's, she will die and live again. Yeah. How, how Is that how you heard it? Yeah. Which way? She will die and live again. Yeah. I preferred it the original way, so that's kind of annoying. Oh, I can't... No, I, I like it. I, I like both. It's just, it's weird when there's that change there. There's this, this kind of sexuality with she. Yes, true. Um, and, and not everybody is as obsessed with free will as you seem to be having had several conversations with you about it. <laughs> let's not review free will, let's review too. Oh, oh please, let's, let's continue. Pride, brackets, in the name of love, close brackets. What do you think about this song, Tyler? Um, well, uh, I found out through my research that this song was actually written during the war se uh, sessions. At least the, the, the melody and the chords of the song. I think if you go back to the Unforgettable Fire documentary, which we both had on VHS, yep, ridiculously, it's not really a documentary about the Unforgettable Fire. It's a documentary about Pride in the Name of Love. Yeah, it t took them years to write this song. If that first showed up in the war sessions, it's it's a bit of a strange song for me. Because it's one of my least favourite U2 songs of all time. It's good, and Bono sounds incredible, and the band do sound incredible, but for some reason, I really do not like this song. And maybe I'm... Um, maybe that's sacrilege as a U2 fan. Maybe it's one of those songs that you have to like. But I just don't like it. Well, my question would be... Okay, you don't like it anymore, but did you ever feel completely bowled over by this song no now that's interesting because i i'm of a similar opinion i never want to see this song played live if i'm actually attending the gig i this is an example if this if i've got a, a u2 on shuffle and this song comes on i will skip this song yeah i dislike it that much and i would say if this song is played at a concert it's a song where you go to the bar, that kind of thing. Uh, for me, you know, you do whatever you got to do in between the songs because I've heard it so many times. But what I tried to do whilst listening to this for the review, I tried to get back to that sense that I had when I first heard this. And it was an early favourite of mine when I was at the very start of getting into the band. And it early on ranked alongside Streets, Beautiful Day, it ranked alongside those as a big song that I would put on and love. The guitar riff for me is incredible. It still sounds timeless, but I just I can't get back to that. And I, I mean, maybe this is this is part of you know becoming a deeper fan, becoming more interested in in richness rather than singles, perhaps. 
I can't get back to that original sense of wonder that I used to have listening to this song. That's just, it's sad, really, in a way. If we step out of our U2, uh, sorry, Review 2 time machine here, and we're back in 2016, do you think it's because this song has aged badly? Is that the reason? It sounds very, very mid-80s. And again, I'm going to point to Larry's snur here. I just think it's... I don't think it's finished. I don't I don't think... Mm. You know, like... You don't think this is as realised as the song can be? No. The faster version that they play in the Unforgettable Fire documentary, they had to slow this down yeah. just so, so that it will work. I prefer that. It because could be faster. It's more yeah. like a, a UT. It's more like a, a war track. Um, but no, I don't like this song at all. And maybe the, the, you know, I, I've seen U two fans go absolutely crazy for this song, but I never want to hear it. I never want to see them play it live. I, I I'm not saying it's a bad song because people, you know, people obviously still like it. But I really cannot get on board with this song, and I've always had this problem. Well, I think it's interesting that this song. I mean, we, what we really don't want to do is suggest that this song isn't important in terms of its subject matter, in terms of the dignity that it, you know, the dignity that it is outlining about a particular civil rights struggle. Yeah. Although Bono got the details wrong on um, on when the assassination actually occurred, which is an interesting fun fact. Did you get the date wrong? He says early morning. It didn't happen it was in the early the morning. Afternoon. I mean, I'm not going to say the exact date because I don't know the exact date. April but, 4th. No, but I mean at the exact time, sorry. Oh, right. But it, it certainly wasn't early morning. But what I think... The reason why I kind We're of... talking get, about the assassination of uh, MLK, yeah, yeah. by the way. So what I think is... The thing that puts me off this song is that it's when Bono comes back out wherein he's not rock and roll anymore. He's not rock and roll Bono. He's nothing like The Fly or anything, you know, kind of fun. That's when he comes back out with his T-shirt under a under a suit, and it's like, oh, here's TED Talk, Bono. And yeah, you think, oh, get back to playing rock no and roll. There's no irony intended. It's just, yeah, it's just ridiculous. And the thing is, I don't have a problem. I have no problem. In fact, I really like the fact that you two weave politics into the music, but do it in the way that they do with songs like, say, "Bullet the Blue Sky" or "Sunday Bloody Sunday," yeah. where it's integral to it's integral to actually a rock and roll performance rather than a do you think it's, slow it's, down. it's sincerity that gets us about this song? Maybe we're just a little bit cynical about it. I, yeah. I, I mean, this is, the, this is the good thing about being the edge, though, because no matter how sincere a guitar line is, you can't really get that cynical about it. So that riff still hits me. The solo, which is incredible, still hits me. It's just the rest of it that sounds a bit tired. And considering, by and large, that this album is all about... Um, discovering America and American music and American uh, idols and leaders and uh, culture is it not a bit obsessive to be so sincere about something like this and I, I know not that I'm disparaging Martin Luther King at, at all um, I, f I found the man utterly utterly fascinating but for some uh, for a band that's still very new to American culture are, are they not just coming on a little bit too strong? It's like when you have one date with a girl and then you're messaging her all the time. I get that impression with this song, and I think I, I, if I was a rock star, I really wouldn't want to be seen that way. Well, this to me marks the, the very start of that journey to America. I mean, if we said that that 
early trilogy of albums is all about home and this is about the beginning the journey to america they're obviously going to arrive with joshua tree and then you know possibly get a little bit too deep into america with rattling home but you know looking ahead so i agree with you that they are starting this engagement with america in a more active way that's interesting there's been hints of it before refugee that kind of thing yeah but originally this song was meant to be about ronald reagan it was the pride that wasn't the dignified type that mlk represented it was to do with the you know the kind of the the negative connotations of pride and there is there continues to be this engagement of bono with you know him being very anti the american right so maybe that would have made it a more interesting song if it was i mean imagine that i mean uh, it completely flipped on its head it's almost it's almost sort of like the native sun that exists um relative to vertigo it's sort of a shadow version of this song that we'll never hear you know when we can hear native sun but you know that would be interesting yeah and a less idealistic wide-eyed engagement hey here's bono here to sort everything out and tell people what's right well when two of us really don't care for this song no matter how much we talk (laughs) i don't think we're gonna change our, our minds um listeners feel free to comment and let us know why you like this song and what it means to you Maybe there's a memory, you know, involved in that. There's a lot of, of memories involved with U2 songs for me. But I think for Review 2, this song is kind of going into Room 101 right now. Okay, next up on The Unforgettable Fire is track three, Wire. I love Wire. It's such a good third track. What we have here is... A showcase of the edge we have his shuddering delay we have him using the whammy bar we have him using a lot of slide there's an amazing restlessness that's evoked through the guitar through all those different techniques which syncs up really well with the subject matter which is heroin addiction or at least that's one interpretation that a lot of people have of this song and i think it's interesting because i didn't connect wire to heroin addiction for a long a long time or any or any form of addiction but i mean that's the beauty of the album that there can be so many different interpretations of this song once you see it it's like the fedex arrow once you see it it's going to be there forever for you but i think that it's a it's really interesting because we've just come out of the really conventionally structured you know verse chorus verse chorus pride and in here we have strange sections which are which exist even only for a moment so this is very specific, but go to the song and look at the mid-break that occurs around about the 3.20, 3.25 kind of moment. There's a little section, though, which doesn't occur in the rest of the song. It's very individual. I think it's where Bono's saying, do, 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 that kind of thing. Terrible impression, but there you go. <laughs> Listen to that. What It just exists for its own moment. This is a band that are doing things purely for the sake of the artistic work that is the album. It's so interesting. I can see that this song excites you, the, I'm very the, way, the way you're talking about it. I have mixed feelings about this song. Okay. It was written, uh, according to my notes at least, about Bono's mixed feelings about drugs. Yeah. My first question for you is which drugs has Bono done? Because he, he doesn't seem the drug type. Eurofen? Not... <laughs> yeah, a paracetamol or two. I think he's done a, a few a few drugs on this no, side. But if this song is about heroin, I don't I'll, think he's done heroin. No, I certainly don't. I don't. 
But I think he knew people who did. That's the thing. Yeah, well, he did. One one of his friends was on, uh, uh, not Cedarwood Road, um, the High Street, uh, when it got blown up. You can tell I've researched this. Um, That's for another day, though, isn't it? Another time, another place. Absolutely, yes. But, no, I just had to question which drugs has Bono really experienced. Because he, he's not a cool man. Not that drugs are cool in any way, but you can't, certainly can't imagine him in a drug crowd. Uh, we're talking to U2 fans, and you've just said that Bono isn't cool. Uh, for, right, in terms of U2, yeah, he's cool. Yeah. But in terms of people, if you're into the drug scene, mm. if Bono turns up, he's going to be sat in the corner like a bit of a lemon. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but back to the song... The, it, these lyrics were improvised by Bono. I do think it's more of an edge track, uh, uh, more of an uh, experimentation uh, by Edge. Yeah. He stands out more than anybody else. When this song, this is, and this is my review, uh, when this song is on in the background, as an you know as an ambient soundtrack to the day, absolutely fine. But when I sat down to review this song, I hated it. What? I, I really didn't like. I. I I just didn't like it. Um, Does that opening it, riff not send shudders down your spine? Yeah, it starts off strong and then it just gets weak. It, and, and it annoys me because I, I don't like not liking you two songs. The amount of money I have poured into their pockets over the years, I should love every single track they do. But I just don't like this song. Do you not think Bono's voice, his vocal strength comes across really well in this song? I mean, he's so much, he's so much more interesting and varied than that kind of that sort of tight-throated Bono that we get that is arguably a little bit shrill on war whereas here he's doing so many different things and you know later on when he's saying kiss me you know that kind of thing you're not excited by that your face isn't no um it just it just doesn't tick the right boxes for me I'm afraid this song There's a lovely little jingle there, John. Um, right, so, track five. The Unforgettable Fire, the title track. Absolutely one of my favourite songs uh, by you 2 Johnny, I think you really need to take the lead on this, so it's over to you. Cheers. This is my favourite U2 song of all time. My favourite song ever. I knew that. Well done. Um, and listeners at home, if you've been guessing on this one, you're right. So, it's actually quite difficult to discuss your favourite song ever because it would be very hard to scientifically describe the things that make it stand out for you. Yeah, I have the Kleenex ready. Okay, I'll try not to well up. From the first time I heard the opening notes to this song, I've always experienced it as a very magical song. Now, that's a word that is very naive, but is appropriate at a few points in music. There's so much going on with it in terms of its texture, its richness, the fact that it is full of sketchy lyrics in terms of these are big broad strokes that Bono is using. It doesn't tell a clear story. But although these are broad brush strokes, they're very evocative, they're not vague. It sounds almost like a romance, it sounds a bit like a tragedy. I like the orchestra strikes that occur midway through that people often seem to really hate. Are they supposed to signify the dropping of the bomb I think 
well, I mean, de the video definitely draws a very clear link between the two things. Obviously, this song, uh, the title comes from an exhibition that was held at the Chicago Peace Museum, and it was an exhibition of artwork by victims of the atomic bombs that were dropped in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the enormous legacy that that, you know, that that bombing left on people. So it's got that dimension. But I mean, th this is every. I've, this is why I like it so much, and probably why my I'm not being very clear, and I'm kind of all over the place. It's a big production, I think, is what you're trying to get to. Yeah. It's a big idea. Um, it's. This is one of the few examples on this album. Not not few examples, but one of the the prime examples on this album of the production team and the band really working together yeah. to create something epic and that's that's a song I think a lot of uh, bands would like people to say about certain songs that, that is epic but this is probably U2's first epic song and, it, and I think that epic quality comes from the fact that the original chords to this song when it was in its embryonic stages came from the fact that Edge was experimenting with some soundtrack music Edge would you know, kind of, he he wrote the the soundtrack to Captive. That's another thing I'd love to review too. Very long way down the line, but yeah. we'll get there. So I think that gives it that quality. But I find myself so swept up in this song, and like all my favourite U2 songs, it feels like it's only just begun, and then it's over. Then we're hearing those orchestra, you know, kind of strains finishing and I think where, where did that go it's a bit like streets in that way or ultraviolet it just passes by because it's so good I think what we're saying here is there is a sincerity um, to make this song as big as it can be because it's a it's a big powerful idea so even if you just visualize the song uh, and the meaning there's a sincerity there but there's a sincerity on uh, pride in the name of love I think the difference is there is poetry within the lyrics for this song. You don't get the same poetry. It's just a bleeding heart column um, in Pride in the Name of Love. While I agree, I think we should possibly be slightly nicer about Pride. Just considering, I, I just see such a backlash here. Well, I'm not trying to be offensive. We are talking about the music. That's true. But uh, we're entitled to our opinions. God yeah, damn it! Yeah, and like I'm not. I'm really not talking about um, the substance or anything like that, or, or the or, or the context. Just in the way the sounds, uh, the, the song sounds. Is it because it's so specific? Maybe, but you know, it's okay to. Sometimes it's okay to just say, "Okay, this is what the song is about," and just plant that seed, mm. and then let the guitars and the drums, and um, the music and the lyrics and all that sound let that take it somewhere else let it take you on a journey yeah um films do that all the time and music can do that yeah so i think that is the difference between this song and pride and why this is such a overwhelming success mm. and why pride if i had my way would be on the cutting room floor wow um, the only thing that I wanted to say about this, apart from to to reiterate that all the things that I said earlier about sort of homecoming, about the poetry of the song, they're present here. You can read sections of this song and it is the most wonderful poetry. 
But it's interesting that this is my favourite song of all time. It is an emotional song for me. And yet the first word of it is technically shit. Because Larry, as you can hear, gets his counting at the wrong time. And you can just hear it if you listen back. You can just hear him saying shit like that. I've never heard that. But, you know, he's always wanted to be a vocalist. <laughs> Promenade. What do you think, Tyler? Uh, I think this is a nice ambient midway song. It really works well. Again, the production. Eno's influence is really prevalent in this song. Uh, Bono's voice sounds absolutely incredible. Like, just so, so good. I would agree. The placing on this album is something I guessed uh, because uh, now through the use of things like Spotify. Track listing, I, I don't know if it's that important anymore. There's definitely less of a sense of the journey of an album now, definitely. But even listening on Spotify without having the track list right there, as in a vinyl track list and A and a B side, I didn't, I didn't fully know where side two started, but I got the sense that this was the final track of side A. Yeah. And I was right, I just checked in the break. And um, I'm very glad that I was right. Because what this song does is it just ends the story of the first side. And I think that is a lovely and a, pretty much a perfect way to end the first track. Because some people wouldn't have listened to the whole thing, you know, and turned it over straight away. They would have left it a mm. while and then come back to it. Singles generally tended to be on the first side. And then the second side was for real um, music fans who wanted to have, soak up every little bit of the album. The deep cuts, yeah. It's interesting because U2's first album that was released on a CD was War. But my question to you with this is, are they still writing for the format of LP? I think so. I think it takes a long time for that shift to actually set in. I mean, any new innovation, you can say, okay, well, this was the date that the iPod was released, but it's it takes a few years, for example, before people actually start to stop using CDs and move predominantly onto something like MP3 as their main format. I don't think there's an, a, as much of a shift from, say, a CD to an MP3, unless you're going for really, really long albums. But there are a few uh, LP albums that I can name that really master the side A, yeah, the side B that, yeah. transition and really having two distinct sides that work as little minis. Yeah. Uh, and I can probably think of one CD that really uses the format well. Which um, is? Uh, that would be Mew and the Glass Handed Kite. Ah. That's, yeah. Which is very much a whole album um, rather than a collection of songs. Yeah, because I mean, that is literally one piece of music. So it all flows into each other because it's a concept album. So, yeah, no, I see what you're saying there. Yeah. So, you think this is a successful end to that first side? Absolutely. And it's beautiful. And it's one of my favourite songs on this album. And it's nice and it's short and it doesn't overstay its welcome. And it was so nice to actually feel that about at least one track on this album? Well, I think 
I think what you were saying about Eno having his stamp on this is his influence is so true. We're not saying that he did everything here at all, but so much of this record are the good bits of it, the best bits of it, like this, like The Unforgettable Fire, like Homecoming for me, is the to do with chance and the to do with composition that can't be easily replicated. So I get the feeling that you would never get Promenade played the same time live, ever. And that's what makes it so, again, I'm going to use the word, magical. And you can feel that kick in. If you do, if you are going to enjoy this song, I think you can feel that kind of, you know, hers pricking up on the back of your neck feeling. When Bono moves that lyric to the higher ground, there's that shift that the bass starts to flow. And you do feel yourself swept up that spiral staircase, which apparently, I mean, it doesn't really matter where this song is located, but Bono had just moved to a new um, a new Martello Tower, as far as I could tell, in a place called Bray. They were overlooking the promenade. They had one of those lovely old spiral staircases. Mm. And you can see that this is a romantic song um, about, you know, moving up to the higher ground, that kind of thing. And it... Lovely is a word that comes across. And it's more interesting than the boisterous... I like Two Hearts Beat as one, but this is much more my kind of romantic song than that really boisterous Two Hearts Beat as one kind of song. I think they're very different. Um, yeah. So that's yeah. not a fair comparison. Um, but fair enough. Is the lyric, uh, Roman candle lightning lights up the sky, or Roman candle lightning... Is 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 the is love in there as well? Roman candle lightning love. I think because he says light like that, it can sound a bit like love. Yeah. I mean, in our accents, it sounds terrible. Ro- but way. Roman candle lightning, lightning lights up the sky. Yeah, but Roman candle lightning love. I I love that 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 lyric, and and it it makes my brain really you know think about you know what. <laughs> What's the context here? What does he mean? And so I enjoyed my misinterpretation. As did I before. Yeah, but it's Roman candle lightning lights up the sky. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, See, I, I I get I, I get a nice image, but I I preferred my original. Um, weirder kind of image. A bit yeah. More, I mean, those moments of ambiguity are where this record shines. I think. Fourth of July. What do you think about this song, Tyler? The story behind this song is that uh, at the end of uh, a recording session, Adam was playing around with different riffs, and Eno heard this and started to record it without uh, Adam's knowledge. Um, And then The Edge joined in, and Eno recorded it, and mastered it, uh, put it on on a disc, so it was... It, you couldn't take it back and you know overdub it and put different things in. Yeah. I think Eno put one or two little of his his own little synthy things in here and there. My reaction to this when I listened to it was an inappropriate slow filler track oh, what? that shows a lack of identity. And uh. bef- I didn't know the story about Eno, mm. uh, and I put as my final note. The blame falls entirely at Eno's door. I do not like this track. I don't see why it should be on the album when I know for a fact they had much better songs ready well, that's to go. True. Well, that's true. It's ridiculous that it is on there. It's Eno overstepping the mark and completely <laughs> taking over 
Um, I hope we never interview Eno because this could be this could get quite I would love heated. to interview Brian. Uh, I'll just sit quietly in the corner. Actually, I saw him once in a kebab shop and was too afraid to go and say hello. Well, if only you knew you were going to start a Review 2 podcast. Well, I would have gone up to Brian Eno and said, put down your kebab, Brian. I need to shake your hand because the credit for 4th of July belongs to you. This is a great song. It's really good. It's what this album needs. It needs these patches of experimentation. Now, as... Experimentation uh, is okay when it works. As here. But they have nothing to do with this. Like, this, this can't be seen as a U2 track. Surely. Of course it can, because this is a document of them playing in that sense of like well, childlike I, play, where you don't do it for a goal or a reason. I understand that it's a document, and I do find that kind of thing interesting. But save it for a, a B-side or something. Don't put it on... Don't put it on an album. Certainly don't put it as the first track of ta- of, tra- of, of side two. What? How, how is anybody going to listen to the rest of the songs on this album? Okay, I agree with the placement of it. I still think it deserves to go on there. It's a bad choice, I agree, for the very first track of Side 2. And the fact that they called it 4th of July, by the way, if you didn't know, you two were trying to appeal to an American audience. It, well, this must, really, this because... must be how annoyed normal people get at Bono for just being over the top and really shoving messages down their throat, which I don't necessarily agree with, because I, I like Bono, I think he's a nice guy. But with this song, it utterly, utterly irritates me. The name, the sound, the placing on the album, Brian Eno overstepping the mark, which he's not paid to do, by the he's way. He's paid to be a genius, which is what he's doing. He's actually influencing. It, it re- uh, this track really, really annoys me, and... You can't tell. I, 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 it just really detracts um, from an album I was trying to enjoy. Okay. I would say... I mean, I, I obviously like the track. I agree that it shouldn't be placed at that point. With the title, however, I think, although it does certainly accrue lots of resonance through 4th of July, which I don't think is trying to court an American audience because it sounds so dreary, you know. I, I like its kind of, like, mysterious, like, kind of murky sound. I like that. But when you hear 4th of July, you think, you know, da, 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 ba, 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 ba. you know, like, you think of something upbeat, and then you hear this... Maybe it's actually a commentary on 4th of July. But from what I can tell, from my wider research, it was that it was recorded on the 4th of July. It's simply meant to be, this is what they were doing in this moment. And that's why it's great that Eno captured it in that way. Okay, someone says 4th of July to you, what do you think? No, you think Uncle Sam, you think Americana, you think fireworks, you think of... Um, the Statue of Liberty, that's what you think about. What? Sorry? Okay, here we go. Track seven, if you get to it, bad. <laughs> I got to it. Bad is a mainstay in the U2 live canon. Absolutely, yeah. I remember hearing this for the first time ever when I was watching Elevation, when it was broadcast on Channel 4, and being absolutely blown away by it. The the culmination of this song, the fact that you two can write such a, a long song, which starts off so gently, but then somehow culminates in something so magisterial. I've heard someone, I think it was actually someone in Total Guitar, describe 
the Edge's solo here and the simplicity of what he does when the song actually kicks, you know, later on, it's even though it's so it's so gentle and there's not distortion in sight, it's more effective than an army of James Hetfield from Metallica. So it's an incredible song. I think again what I like about it is we have a sense of weariness entwined with a sense of hope where the music and the lyrics and the subject matter are all in interesting juxtaposition they're working in tension with each other and you have this sound this glittering sound accompanied by incredible lyrics you know colors crash collide in bloodshot eyes so many good lyrics from this song yeah i i agree um this song is written similar uh, uh, similar reason to wire there was a record shop on a high street near where bono lived Friday night he would have gone there um, every week uh, one particular Friday night he didn't and a car bomb went off but his friend was there that night uh, and it completely changed his life it completely uh, destroyed his life in many ways he got uh, he became a heroin addict and Bono was always I think been a bit freaked out by the parallel. This is a school friend and a good friend, you know, who he would have gone to this record shop with. And he could so easily have been in the same position. Yeah, the stark contrast of one event, one day, a few minutes in someone's lives, hmm. how that can drastically, drastically change. And you know, the the two kind of went off, at a, you know, at a, a fork in that was a fork in the road for for both of them. Bono's always, you know, remained in contact and was always had this. I wouldn't say guilt, but this awareness that if he'd have been there that day, he could have been in a very similar position. And something that's obviously so recently re-explored, yeah. explicitly on Raised by Wolves as well. Yeah, um, that that would be, I suppose, the the trilogy of, of three songs about the this same event. And I think everybody can agree that's quite a scary concept that, you know, you can grow up with someone and have very similar upbringings and then this one day one thing happens to one of you and uh, and it just completely changes the course of your life. Mm. Um, it's timeless. I, I think this is one of the strongest songs on the album. It's right up there with um, The Unforgettable Fire, the track, not the album. Fourth of July. <laughs> it's... It's nice. There's minimalistic guitar in this track, as opposed to Wire, were pretty experimental for it. That's how John on Full Throttle was. This is far more toned down, yeah, at the start at least. Bono's vocals are just incredible. Uh, the lyrics are great, but I think Larry may be the unsung hero of this song, as he has to keep a nice, steady control and not completely bash it out yep. in that military style that he's accustomed to, and I think prefers to do so yeah that's that really stuck it just how controlled uh, Larry must have been to make this song as strong as it possibly can be so that that's really um, my analysis of this song I think it's great and there's a reason that you two have brought this forward do you not think it's also an occasion where the titling of a song is 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 really well well I mean we know that you two have some Stinkers in terms of album titles of songs. Um, I don't know. I don't know what you could be referring to. Could you could you give me a couple of examples? Well, 
Get On Your Boots, Woman Fish, which is, isn't an album track, but mm. there's there's quite a few. Have you got any? Uh, Daddy's Gonna Pay For Your Crash Car really annoys me. I quite like that one. Um, oh, Peace On Earth, awful name for a song. There are there are a few um, songs that... Crumbs, Crumbs From Your Table has always irritated me. <laughs> um, I don't think any rock band's ever had a song with crumbs. <laughs> well, let's not skip ahead um, a few a few decades in the review two time machine yet. Fourth of July, that annoys me. Okay, well let's not let's not go back either. Right, okay. So, bad. Do you not think this is a really? It's a great title because it's almost like there's been a defeat in the in the in the persona of this song that they can just say this is this is bad. You know, this is, and it's bad as a big concept, an abstract concept. If he'd written, I know they wouldn't title this, but if he called it something like "One Man's Trial with with Heroin" or something like that, or "Addiction" or something like that, you know, by Kelvin Klein. Like if they called it something st- stupid and on the nose, it would be so much less effective than just. Can bad. I just say that Calvin Klein have not ever and do not intend to start promoting heroin abuse? No, and they all or heroin at all. All this podcast. Okay, so the next track is Indian Summer Sky. Um, on the surface, the way this song starts makes me think it's going to be everything I want from a song. It's going to tick every every box. I'm going to absolutely love it. That stops as soon as as soon as Bono sings a very weak sky. Uh, the lack of clarity in the lyrics utterly irritates me, and I don't know what this song is about. I further criticisms of it would be that it's too repetitive, it doesn't go anywhere, and I do think this thought kept coming back to me throughout this album. If you haven't got ten tracks, don't put ten tracks on the album. Put eight on because it'll be a stronger album. Don't put a weak track on there just because you want to get to 10 tracks. I agree with that philosophy in general. I think the problem with this album more specifically is that, and we'll get to this in another review, but that they, they, well, the frustration about this album is that there were other tracks which other people had basically said, or, you know, had talked to the band about and said, leave those songs on, put these ones on. And that's the annoying thing, that there was such a wealth there that you could have made 10 a t- an excellent ten-track album. I would, I would keep this on though. Um, for me, this is a kind of a forgotten classic, really. I want to like this song. I, 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 I do, and I've, I, 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 I catch myself if it's just in the background. I catch myself tapping my foot or drumming on the desk, mm. something like that, singing along. I do want to like it, but I can't. I, I it just when I listen to it properly, it irritates me. It really, really annoys me because I don't think it's a complete idea. There are strong parts in the song. I'm not going to be really down down on it completely, but so maybe it was something that could have progressed given time. Okay, but I mean, I I, I feel like they rushed to put it, to record this and put it on, and it was a half baked idea. Do you not get a sense that for all the all the natural imagery that's in it? I mean, the quote that I have from from. Um, the quote that I have from Bono here is that it's about a spirit trapped in a concrete city. It's about Bono visiting places like New York and seeing 
and seeing different sides of America, some that were some that were really built up and concrete, and some that were more open and natural. I have the same quote here from Bono, and the song is about the prison-like atmosphere of city living in a world of natural forces. Yeah, which actually now when you read that back to me, it does sound very. It sounds it's very like, Bono, like it's classic it, it, Bono going back to something and being like the narrative we were trying to tell. What's was. interesting about that that, that uh, quote is if Bono was sat here and he said that to us, mm. we like we both be like, yeah, that's that's really so true, Bono. It's, it's really interesting. I've never thought about mm. things like that. But as soon as anybody else says them, it's utterly, utterly ridiculous. Elvis Presley and America. Uh-huh. Okay. This is my time to get irate, I think. Because I get annoyed when the lads have got a good chord sequence and it is squandered by poor recording, by a lack of polish. And this is where... I think you had a problem with Eno, obviously, on 4th of July. He adds so much to this album and it's you know unmestakably Brian Eno's handprints are all over this album mostly in a good way but there is a limit to experimentation and and there is a limit to how far it should be pushed and this sounds so rough and unfinished in the in the worst possible ways bono actually sounds bad and it's it's fine for bono to sound you know kind of a little bit less than average his voice you know, reaches a peak at, at different points in the career for for different people at different times. But when he's saying, "Would you share it in your heart?" Uh, 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 oh my God, I, it makes me wince every time I listen to this song. Yeah, it's terrible. It's awful. And I realised, um, right? Okay. How long would you say this song is? How long? Um... Oh, no more for no more forty jokes. We've uh, done them. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, too long, probably. Well, that's because it's terrible. We'll say it's definitely too long. But just put a figure on it. Guess. Four thirty. Right. That's interesting. Right. Now it's actually the longest song on the album at six twenty-three. It's longer than bad. Now my theory with this, because I was quite surprised about that, is. Because no one ever gets to the end of it. People just turn it off. It's so bad. I've never sat down and looked through the lyrics. Don't. There's no point. They're terrible. And I understand that this is meant to be a sketch. It's an improvisation. Yeah. But it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's... This is what... I'm fine with this being, you know, existing on a tape somewhere as, you know, the, the thing that comes three or four takes before they get into an actual draft of a song. I think, I think this is the problem. Uh, Brian Eno had never worked with U2 before yeah. on this uh, on this album without being unfair to Brian Eno because because uh, later on I, I really do love some of the stuff he did with U2 but I do think that a lot of the time quite fairly Brian Eno can be accused of writing music for himself when he is employed by U2 to help them create music that is going to sell and selling the millions. Should you two have had the confidence to say, no, that's, we're not doing that, that's stupid? Perhaps. But, yeah, it, it, there, too much Eno r- has ruined too much of this song. Uh, too much of this album, sorry. Poor sound quality, poor vocals, poor song, 
a poor tribute. I can't believe that Elvis Presley's name is even attached to this. That's the thing that got people annoyed as well, if, and if, continues to. Well, yeah, like if I had the Elvis Presley estate, I'd be on the phone going, can you just put anyone else's name on? Anyone. Put Cliff Richard's name on, you mm. know. That's it's unfair to Cliff, to be honest. It overstays its welcome. I didn't know the, the track let, went that long. And, and oh, I'm so glad I hadn't realised that because I, I would have had a um, 4th of July style rant on this song had I realised that. I, I actually want to turn it off. That's my that's written in my notes as, as I was listening to it. I want to turn it off. I had to just I yeah I had to force myself to sit through it. And again, it's what Brian Eno adds this album in terms of you know experimentation, ambience, synthesizers, that kind of thing. The idea of things just existing for a moment, chance. I love all that. I love pretty much all of Brian Eno. You know, ninety five percent of Brian Eno's output. It's just that this was an absolute car crash of a song essentially and it shouldn't be on the record how did Paul McGuinness let this on the record how <sighs> and we reach the comforting balm after that awful track which is MLK Tyler what's your thoughts I've always loved this track Mm-hmm. It's it's really really good. I don't know how I, how I ever even got to hear it. Um, I must have suffered through Elvis Presley in America. But I think of this song in a similar way as I think of October. The song October, you mean specifically? Yeah, yes. Yeah, okay. um, just just so lovely, so romantic. It's got a it's got a, a great loving feel to it. I. My mind is always taken back when I see this. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but when we saw you two in Manchester on the Vertigo tour, we were outside and it started to rain, and you two were doing the sound check. Hmm. And Bono started to sing, "When the thunder uh, thunder cloud passes rain, so let it rain." And I always thought that that was just a nice little moment because he knew he was coming out yeah. the speakers outside the arena, and he just saying, "At least I'm getting rained on as well, guys." Yeah. So. I always I always like that. I like the song before anyway, um, but it was made even more special that we got that little snippet because not everybody that had a ticket got that. We were we were really early that day. Yes. Um, it's but back to the song. I, I do absolutely love it. This is a much more fitting tribute to MLK than Pride was. I do have a question for you. Is this song good enough? to sit through Elvis Presley in America. Um, no, but this is why, you know, we have the skip function on CDs nowadays and uh, mp think of vinyl. Think of early um, CDs. Did they have that function? In that original context, it is actually a bit annoying that you have to come through that to get to this. And it's so short that maybe a couple of people actually didn't put it on just to hear it, but it's such a good song that I think a lot of people probably probably did. After... I, I, I Six minutes of um, of Elvis Presley in America. Six minutes plus. I really don't. I I don't think I'd have stuck around as much as I love the song. I don't know if I would stick around for that. Well, I think I think people would because, to me, it carries on from this great tradition that begins on War of having a nice, quiet, almost 
lullaby-ish kind of song. I mean it in a very good way. It feels like a natural successor to something like 40. And I really like it when you two finish on this kind of note on the album. It's nicely wrapped up. Grace would be another example of something that I quite I, you I like. You can imagine like you know, having a lover in your arms and singing her to sleep, singing this song, you know, singing to sleep. Not many U2 songs you can do that with. Uh, you can't uh, cradle a lover's head in your lap and sing, Sunday, bloody Sunday, because it won't work. No, and they'd probably wake them up. <laughs> I think that this song... Um, Bono is so present on this song that the temptation is, I think, just to focus on the lyrics and the the voice, the vocal quality here. But I think it's interesting to actually, if you try to listen to what's going on that isn't that isn't vocal here, it's such an odd song. It is essentially an ambient rumble, which again, Eno's influence great there, with this long, almost sound of an exhaling of breath that sort of comes that becomes higher in the mix throughout it's so odd but i also think that when i was listening to it i was thinking this is so fascinating because we have this rumble this ambient kind of hum that then finishes really peacefully and then when we get to the next album which we'll cover on our next review too we have this hum growing again and then we get into where the streets have no name and i, I love that sense of not continuity, they obviously didn't Johnny, it. put that crystal ball away, will you? Well, who knows what will happen in the future, but that's my two cents on it. Excellent song, and an excellent closer to a difficult, brilliant, yet inconsistent album, I think. Okay, once again, at the end of every U2 album, we will give you our sweetest thing and our dirty day. That's our favourite song and our least favourite song. So, Johnny, what is your sweetest thing? Each week it makes me wince more. Um, On to finer things. It's no surprise that my sweetest thing for this album is The Unforgettable Fire. Not only my favourite song from this album from this band, but my favourite song of all time. For now, it might change, unlikely. I really like Unforgettable Fire. Uh, I really like Bad. I really like a a sort of homecoming. But for me, this week, um, I have to give it to Promenade because that's just a joy to listen to. Um, Really is. And it's a a song that, if you'd have asked me three weeks ago, I wouldn't have said that. Um, it's purely for discovering it through this journey. So, yeah. So enjoy the process. For the Review 2 um, podcast, that is my sweetest thing. Johnny, what is your dirty day? Thank you, David. The only, thing, the only thing that makes me wince more than your introductions to these is Elvis Presley and America. Utter, utter garbage. Apart from the guitar chord sequence, which is okay. And to nobody's surprise, mine is Fourth uh, of July. Worse than Elvis Presley in America. Um, had I, I had I noticed it was six and a half minutes, I probably would have put that one. Okay. Um, but I must have zoned out. So there we have it. That was U2's fourth album, The Unforgettable Fire. 
Johnny, any closing notes? It's a question I often return to on this podcast. The question is, is this a flipping album, Tyler? Well, Johnny, no, it's not. Really? No, I no, I can't see this as an album. I, I, there are ten tracks on this album, two of which I feel have no place on the album, so that brings it down to eight. And of those three, I really can't stand them. Okay. I like five. I like five of them, and I think that's a good... Um, it's an EP. Why the hell they didn't put uh, Love Comes Tumbling on this? Because that's one of my favourite U2 songs of all time. Well, I think we'll what we'll do is we'll return to... Cause I think really, that's a really yeah, good to We're going to come back to, to those as well. But the Wide Awake in America. If you put Wide Awake in America, in America on, on the back of this, without repeating tracks, obviously, yeah, yeah. You got, you've got a pretty good album. But they didn't have enough songs. There's not enough identity for this album to, to really work. The, f- the focus on America rather than Europe, I don't really mind. Um, it's kind of like going to university for them, I think. They graduated out of Dublin. Hmm. Um, that was the college years. Then they went to America for a, f- a few years. And then they came back to and Europe. got all arty and went a bit too experimental. Yeah, and then they, 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 they came back. some bad types called so Eno and Lanoir. It's ambient in the sense that it's best listened to in the background for the love of God, don't sit down and try and listen to this album Gosh, and really words. concentrate on it. I realised before we started this task that I very rarely listened to this album. Um, so a lot of the songs, while they still feel fresh, they do just jar with me. And um, there are songs I want to like but find myself hating. Having said that, songs like uh, Pride in the Name of Love has stood the test of time. It's still around and people still like it. Still deeply popular, um, yeah. But, you know, that comes down to my opinion. I'm not expecting anybody to agree with my opinion. It's just, you know, it's just there. So I'm, I'm, I don't want to seem like I'm coming down too hard on this album because, I, I just, well, Stephen Fry, if you're listening, I know this is his favourite U2 album. But for me, it doesn't work. And there are, uh, that's okay. There are a lot of other examples from U2's back catalogue that make me very, very happy. This just isn't an example of one of them, although it has some very good songs. Okay. I'm not going to add too much apart from that I think this is an album, and I think it's actually... It's the album that so far in the career is the attempt at a cohesive piece of art rather than just being a collection you know, of, of tracks. A failed attempt, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I like the fact that they stretched for it. It's unfinished, and most frustratingly, it's not been put together in the way that I would have put it together. We'll return to this at some point where we say what would be our alternate track listing. I'm sure that's something that we can do for a lot of, the, of U2's output. Because they have so much material and with the benefit of hindsight, we can say maybe leave Elvis Presley in America in the bin where it belongs, you know. And put something different, something incredible like Three Sunrises, Love Comes Tumbling, that kind of thing on. But I think what we've traded here in consistency and immediacy, all the things that were great about war, we have gained here in depth, experimentation and subtlety. And that, to me, is something so interesting. And it makes this one of my favourite U2 albums to come back to and listen, albeit in a very frustrating way at times. So that was our fourth episode 
our fourth review two of The Unforgettable Fire. Do join us next time when we'll be review twoing The Joshua Tree. There have been a lot of interesting, maybe even controversial opinions on this podcast, so we'd really like to hear what you think. Do you agree with us? Do you disagree with us? Have we been a bit too harsh? Have we been a bit too nice about some of the tracks? But all I have to say is goodbye, thanks for listening, and see you next time. See you later. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at review2contact at gmail.com. That's R-E-V-U-2 contact at gmail.com.